0: Hello friends, in this episode, we sat down with Nicole Vignola, who is a cognitive neuroscientist, author, and speaker committed to making neuroscience tangible for the masses. With 12 years of coaching experience, Nicole has a bachelor's in neuroscience from the University of Bristol and a master's degree in organizational psychology with a research focus in cognitive neuroscience. She works with organizations and individuals to teach them how to better understand their unique physiology, providing them with practical tools and science-backed methods to improve their mental health, optimize reflexes and reach peak mental performance, enhancing their daily lives and their careers. Through creating healthy habits, Nicole helps people best support their mental health, manage their stressors and make better decisions. Her first book, Rewire, Your Neuro Toolkit for Everyday Life, is coming out in May 2024. It was a pleasure speaking with her, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you for joining us. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. It's so wonderful to see you face-to-face. We've been wanting to do this recording for a while, and there's (laughs) always something happening, so we had to adjust our schedules. but. We're so grateful for you to come here and speak with us and share your incredible knowledge with our audience.
1: I mean, Thanks. usually when we, when we meet people and we want to meet people, it's because of the coherence we experience from your posts. Um, there, you get a sense, you get a gestalt, you get a feel of what's the driving factor behind the person's social media presence. Uh, you get a sense of desperation where somebody's just throwing everything, the bombs just to get clicks. You get a sense right. of a person that's so myopic that's trying to make that something meaningful. And then you get a sense of a person that knows their stuff and is creating material that is with that DNA behind the scene True. and you feel the DNA. And And uh, to be honest, that's what's been the, the driving factor to, to make sure that we can kind of get that into these conversations. Um, <clears throat> and, and it's rare in social media because it's, it's driven so heavily by clickbait, by, by, by seeing how many likes and stuff. But when somebody can, can draw a lot of people, but you feel this weight of, of a coherent thought process, we absolutely love it. And I, I'm not saying this as a fulsome flattery or anything. It's, it really is uh, your, the, I was telling Aisha this, Yes. that, oh my gosh, Every time you share something, there is meaning. There's coherence. There's a there's a runway that you know that there's a runway that's uh, that's running behind that's this. True. So that's wonderful.
2: Well, thank you so much. I mean, I'm smiling ear to ear, and it's a huge honor to be here. So <laughs> thank you very much for your kind words, and thank you because I, I I think there's a lot of noise sometimes on social media, you know, and you see people again, like you say, just posting clickbait and, you know, it's funny you say that because sometimes I think that post was a little bit clickbait from my end. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. absolutely.
0: Thank you for uh, <coughs> making neuroscience interesting and applicable. Um, I think I, I want to start by finding out, you know, what made you go into neuroscience? Uh, if you could give us a background story because it's just fascinating. Well, first of all, there are not a lot of females in the, in the field of uh, neuroscience. And I love to see like a strong woman being there. Just give us a little bit of background <laughs> on how you. You, how you got into it.
2: Well, so, you know, a lot of reasons why, but for one, my father was schizophrenic and my stepfather was an alcoholic. And from a young age, my neighbor, I was very lucky, my neighbor was a doctor. And he kind of shaped my understanding of the world by kind of ask, getting me to ask questions, you know, instead of blaming these things, asking why did these things happen? So. I actually wanted to be a doctor for a very long time, but uh, I ended up studying neuroscience because I read uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. I don't know if you've read that book by Bruce D. Perry. No, no, I no I've, okay. I've heard about it, but I haven't read it. Yet. Yeah, I talk about that almost in every podcast I go, and I really blew my mind. It sort of made me think, I want to understand humanity, but to understand humanity, I need to understand the mechanisms of the brain. not. Just the psychology, not that there's anything wrong with psychology, but I wanted to get into the nitty gritty of the fundamental yep. things as to why, you know, why we do the things we do. So in my undergrad um, research, I did um, my dissertation in neuroplasticity and trying to understand sort of mechanisms between inhibitory and excitatory synapses and how they communicate on a nanometer scale. So I was sort of deeply fascinated with how we learn, how we integrate Im- information on a synaptic level. So that's a little bit about me. And, you know, I am. Um, I had a quite a tough entry into neuroscience because I didn't have really good schooling when I was younger. My, As I said, my father, my stepfather um, was an alcoholic. So I actually did very bad at school. And I think I finished with an average of like 48%. So I never really thought I would study. And then I came to England and someone told me about an access course that you can do. And it's basically for like washout like me who want to redeem themselves. <laughs> so... <laughs> um no sorry that was a joke but it's for anyone who kind of is in my situation and wants to redeem themselves and I it was like wow like this is amazing because I didn't know this happened I kind of stumbled upon it and it was an access to medicine and biomedical sciences which just blew my mind that you could do this in, as an adult I don't know how it is in the US but the UK is so providing for people to to do that and yeah. so I did this course but I had to live in the UK for three years so I could get a student loan because I had to pay taxes so I only ended up going to university at 26 or 27 I can't remember. So I was a little bit older than everybody else. And then I went into my master's and, you know, maybe I'll take a few years out, would like to do my PhD eventually, but we'll see. So that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, the,
1: the background with your uh, um, uh, stepfather and, and all of that, and, and, and your neighbor kind of giving you the guidance, it's remarkable. You were talking right now about um, a, a large group of individuals that are don't have the environment to be ready for the kind of schooling that we have, which is a very blunt, uh, uh, siloed, structured schooling system that has a prerequisite that is so complicated. It's a life prerequisite as far as their home, their learning system and anxiety levels that are in certain homes, yeah. uh, attention to a system, that, that incredible human beings are n- not included in that siloed system. and And it's yeah. been and 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 because we we haven't had an alternative, but I'm yeah. hoping that in this century we'll be much more systematic as far as bringing out the genius out of everybody that that would be yeah. amazing
2: well, there was people in my in my course that were sort of retraining at the age of forty six with two or three children. There was one guy who was a journalist, decided to go into medicine, so he went back to school, which I thought was you know amazing because. Firstly, I don't know. I think if I'd gone to school at such a young age, maybe I wouldn't have done as well, but I also not, not sure I would have done what I wanted to do, which was neuroscience, um, which I know, yeah. you know, having done medicine, I probably could have transferred quite easily. Uh, but yeah, so it, it is, it's great. I don't, like I said, I didn't really catch because you cut out for a second whether the US has a similar system, but the UK is great for providing opportunities for people who want to essentially study in their old years. So I ended up doing my GCSEs at the age of 25, which is like, what do you do when you're like 16 at school? I don't know what it is uh, in the yeah. U.S., but I, I, I redid everything to get into university, yeah. and it was great that you know the UK allowed me to do that. We really don't have any system like yeah. that. We don't have a system that catches people
1: that would be um, um, uh, viable or, or um, uh, would fit those categories, and then we don't have a system that would bring people into that structure because mm. it's, in the U.S., it's assumed that you're supposed to pull yourself up by the bootstraps it's 18 yeah yeah and uh, yeah exactly yeah. or 20 or 21 or 25 or 40 yeah. it's such a um um a, a system of judgment in the sense that right. the predetermined states of things are not taken into consideration i'm i'm making some uh, some statements here that have <laughs> some implications yes. but reality is that it, there is really nothing out yeah. there that would catch people yeah. that fall not a, I, mean, I mean there's so many amazing people that would would do so well if they had just a little bit of help just a little bit, yeah. a bit, bit of help at any one point but there's nothing out there
2: yeah. yeah and the way that i found out about it was kind of by accident as well i used to work in a gym and one of the girls working on reception was saying that she was doing this course because she didn't do very well at school to study physiotherapy and i always thought um, okay that sounds really interesting i'm gonna look into it and when i looked into it i read you can do this to get into medicine i was like mind blown like i can become a doctor. At the age of 26, it was like, you know, this whole newfound, you know, hope for life uh, to, to be able to, you know, redeem, I guess, myself in some ways. So, yeah, of course,
0: that's amazing. I think this in itself, uh, Nicole's story is an example of how When um, a human being is given the opportunity or the resources that our minds and and our capacities as human beings is just limitless. We just have to have the right avenue, the right environment, (laughs) the right uh, opportunity to be able to explore it. I mean, of course, I mean, kudos to you for really, you know, having the zeal (laughs) and you really wanted to do something and you pursued it and you went for it. Uh, But it's just fascinating uh, that, you know, at at any point in our life, we can just pick whatever we're interested in, whatever we're passionate in and move forward. So I'm really happy for you that you had those resources available for you because now we're benefiting from it and you're you're making such a big difference in people's lives. I I have a question.
1: It's a little tangential question. So given your journey, and I've thought about this about myself and we've talked about this with you and then we have these two kids. That are um jeans, the, yes. jeans, yeah, they're, Wonderful. they're pretty precocious, but they have their own challenges in a different way. um what's the neuroscience behind how you were able to pull yourself through the 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 challenges that you had? I mean, but what I mean by that is um so i I always say that whenever somebody says, "Oh no, I did it on my own, I would say, "Nope, there was a nitus. there was an element uh, that that would there was an inception point that actually had enough inertia behind it. That created the action potential that had the cascade that then that led to the motivation, that led to the movement and the dopamine, all of that. So I'm not gonna get into detail, Corey. But what do you think was you kind of hinted at that, the neighbor, but do you have you thought about that whole journey? The the neuroscience of Nicole?
2: It's a big question and it's a big sort of opening chapter in my book at the moment, actually. And and it it literally starts with, is it by mistake or design? And I kind of learned to realize that I think it's both. I think a little bit of both. So I didn't have anything to fall back onto in the sense that my mom was a single mom. She didn't have any money. There was no, if I didn't make it, no one was going to make it. So, you know, I couldn't borrow money from her because she didn't have any. So I kind of had to. And then secondly, my sister is a remarkable human being who was kind of like the Peloton to my life. So she Came from South Africa and moved herself to England on a whim, probably to escape the sort of you know toxic household that I was living in with my stepfather. But it propelled her to then you know go into fashion and you know her own success. But it kind of gave me the permission to do so, right? Because if you've got your older sister doing it, um, it it makes it a little bit easier for you. It's kind of like the guy that first climbed Mount Everest after he did, it, everyone else could do it. So, in some respect, it was that pathway kind of been helped out for me a little bit already. Um, and then you know the confounding factors of you know my neighbor sort of instilling this idea of questions and why, and he was a big part of my uh you know understanding of the brain and the world, and you know, I remember when I was a child, I started sort of tying my hair up differently all of a sudden, for no particular reason. It sounds really mundane, <laughs> um but, but I remember no. thinking about a month later going, Why have I changed the way I do my hair? I've been doing my hair a particular way for you know, I don't know, X amount of years. And now all of a sudden I just changed. And that really led me to sort of ask these kind of questions. Like, why did I do that? Did something um, influence me that I maybe see my sister doing it, that I see a friend doing it. Is it fashion? And I still don't know the answer. Um, I think there's bigger questions, uh, to, uh, answers to, to gain from the, the world. But um, yeah, I was sort of fascinated with un- asking questions and I've always been quite driven. I don't know if that's a genetic factor um, or, you know, sort of watching my mum be so strong through all of this, you know, two husbands Mm -hmm. that have essentially passed away. It, it, you know, all this this observational knowledge that I've gained from those around me, my mum, my neighbor, my sister, um, you know, and and I always ask the question, like why in the face of adversity that I managed to pull myself through and there are people who don't, and I still don't know that question, you know, so I think we can talk about this until, you know, the sun comes up and I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I, yeah. absolutely. With the hair thing, I, I, I just to posit, It's a, um, a shifted identity, uh, whether it was selected or 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 a, a subconscious. It was a shifted that uh, an identity that was beyond hair. That you've just yeah. said, I am a new person, which is beautiful. It's, uh, what a beautiful <laughs> concept! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I'm, 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 the reason to me it matters because I think the the entirety of the world, and I don't want to sound bombastic would shift if we if we realize that there are mechanisms that we can identify that can pull people in one direction we have accepted that in public health in so many ways we've accepted that in In... social sciences in so many ways but in in some realms we've just said nope this person is this way because they're such and such and in reality is if we determine if we're complex enough to determine the underlying causes historically and currently we can really help people re-engineer their life, and it, to me, mm. it is a core, central issue. It's yeah. it's a pivotal issue that that goes beyond myself, uh, because otherwise, I say, oh, I'm a good person. I'm MD, PhD, da da da, all that stuff. Nope, I had a pretty good background myself. So, so I love your story, and and um, and and and. Well, this this conversation is is so much richer for it. That's wonderful. I love
2: <laughs> Well, I think there's yeah. an element of growth mindset, you know, and we can kind of argue who, you know, again, whether that's by default or design or by accident, but um I've been deeply fascinated with the work of Carol Dweck recently, who goes into growth mindsets. I don't know if you've ever had a look at any of her research, but, you know, she did amazing research from the 90s on how we attach our identities to specific outcomes. And perhaps, you know, and this is me speculating. I don't know if I ever had an identity because, you know, I was born in Italy, I lived there for 10 years and then I moved to South Africa. So I had to adapt to becoming a new person then, which was quite difficult. I got rejected in school when I first got there because I was kind of the weird kid with an Italian accent. Um, so I never really felt like I belonged. But, you know, at the time was detrimental to me, not feeling like I had any friends, but actually it, it allowed me to maybe expand my mindset to see that I can evolve and I can change. And I think reading the book of um you know that I mentioned earlier, he talks about plasticity, and I realized that you know I sort of went down a rabbit hole on plasticity that we can change essentially at any age um yeah, yeah. so you know we I never really knew that until i I knew that, and then I was you know again compounding effect of actually actually i can I can do what I want, I can go and study, I can change, yeah. I can do this, so yeah, that's what my page in my book is about, like I want people to know that. They can at any age because, you know, I talk about neuroplasticity and for me, it's something I talk about all the time and I still get comments like saying, I didn't know that you could do this. This is amazing. Or thank you so much for kind of like, again, giving them permission to to explore potentially changing habits, behaviors, to get out of their own way. That's
1: beautiful. Yeah. I have a question for you. Um, um so It's a good place to start, given yeah. that this is your subject matter, applied neuroplasticity. Can you, and, I, and even in this conversation, I'm seeing that there are different layers to neuroplasticity that we can be, we were talking about. We're talking about neuroplasticity at the neuronal level, axonal level, dendritic arborization, all of that, but also yeah. neuroplasticity at the systems level. Uh, I yeah. would love your definition or your thoughts on neuroplasticity and the levels uh, that you deal with.
2: So I've only ever studied at, at a neuronal level, so, you mm-hmm. know, with synaptic, um, Excitatory-inhibitory balance and how those balances contribute to varying uh, diseases, for example. So, you know, like uh, epilepsy is dysfunction uh, you know, in the inhibitory synapse uh, mechanisms. But um, so, everything I've studied is kind of like at a, yeah. I guess I guess I'm studying now at a at a sort of macro level because what I'm, what I'm currently looking at is how we make decisions essentially as adults in the workplace. So, uh, I'm on. Specif- um, specializing in organizational psychology but how everyday processes lead us to make p- specific decisions so mental heuristics why we do the things that we do on automaticity and automatic without really realizing it so how many times have you had someone say i'm going to be healthy from this week onwards that's it i'm now healthy and then by friday they've probably forgotten or they revert back to automatic so that's kind of like what i'm doing right now so, sorry, could you repeat the quiz? Does that answer your question?
1: No, no, it does. No, it, it does. Has... So uh, the, yeah. the idea was um, neuroplasticity at the cellular level or at the uh, synaptic level, and then at the macro level, um, how do you, uh, so l- before we get in, in order to connect those two levels, we have to talk about the, what's in between. Yes. Yeah. So what's in between as far as um, uh, what we're talking about is behavior. Because neuroplasticity mm-hmm. can happen in silence and neuroplasticity can happen at the visual spatial level and you're not even aware of it because your your visual spatial sp- patterns and systems are improving. Neuroplasticity can happen at the um, executive function level. Yeah, you're aware of it a little bit, but not not, not not in great detail. Same thing with memory or processing speed, which is actually the most yeah. recalcitrant of them all. Um, the one that actually changes negatively over time over with age is the processing speed, but the rest you can mm-hmm. en- enhance. We're writing a whole book on this now.
2: Wow. Okay, I want to delve into
1: that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, given that, um, uh, but what we're actually talking about is the overt thing, the thing that's in front of everybody, the thing that's in front of ourselves, which is our behavior, and which Mm -hmm. is a, uh, which is not the totality of who we are. This concept that ninety percent or ninety nine percent, whatever analogy is, as far as the iceberg of us is, and is on the surface, and 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 99% is below. Well, that's great. That's true. But when it comes to behavior, it's, um, that's, that's definitely, uh, true because much of the things that are happening in front have already happened underneath through patterns, Mm -hmm. habits, cascades, whatever you want to call them. So let's start there. Um, those, those habit pathways that are created, uh, First of all, let's define that. I love talking about that because every time I talk to somebody, I learn so much about what they see habits or automatic um, uh, macro programs of humanity.
2: So habits for me are things that we repeat on a daily basis, on a regular basis, and you know, I think you guys asked me the question as to whether we, you know, can program these things subconsciously without our or unconsciously without without our conscious sort of awareness of it and I believe that that is definitely true and it's quite interesting because having moved to a new country means that I have actually been able to easily change my old habits because now my environmental cues are different, my um, time cues are potentially different as well so it actually has given me the space to attach new associations to my new environment. So um, You know, I give the classic example of like, I don't personally crave a Coca-Cola, but when I go to the restaurant, it's like the first thing I think about almost because my brains is, ass- I don't drink alcohol. So I do yeah. on occasion, but so, uh, you know, I'll drink wine on like occasion. But so when I go to the restaurant, I'm like Coca-Cola, which is something I would never think about or crave when I'm at home. But my brain has made this yeah. association. So that's kind of like the yeah. habit, if you will, on a macro scale. You know, we can definitely go down a, f- a f- further route on that. But then on you know the micro scale, we've got um, habit loops in the basal ganglia, the 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 sort of go no go, which you guys will know um yeah. you know more about on the uh you know the, the the go no go um uh sorry, by four o'clock my brain starts going a little bit funny because I get up at five thirty <laughs> most days. <laughs> You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, we've got Not the like... circuitries that initiate yes, movement, yeah. and we've got circuits that essentially inhibit movement. So within a habit, there's the, the initiation of a habit, but then there's also the inhibition of other habits or other behaviours. So yeah. that basal ganglia is, is, pretty, is pretty great because it's plastic and we can change that, we can change these habit loops around there and then we can take it down another level um, where we have what's happening on a sy- synaptic level, so you know neurons that fire together, wire together, but with that, you know, the first law of synaptic plasticity is essentially spike timing dependent plasticity. So if the magnitude of one neuron is big enough and in time to, um, you know, um, excite another neuron, then those two neurons will bond, which yeah. is perfect because if they don't and the timing is off or, you know, the pre before post or post before pre, um, it means that they don't bond. What that means is it's perfect because we can do, we can create new habits, but we can also undo habits. So people hold these habits and they kind of feel like, and and I get it, it's hard. Habits are hard, especially when they're deeply ingrained, especially when there's like maybe a substance attached to them, like alcohol or cigarettes, you know, people that want to stop smoking because there's like sort of added layer component to uh, the addiction. But it's great because on a fundamental level, habits are created and broken through the same mechanism, whether it is you wanting to learn to become I don't know, healthier and make better choices for yourself all the way through to potentially you know stopping smoking, for example. Yeah. So on an animameter scale, if we leave enough time and space between the neurons and they no longer communicate with one another, they will stop communicating and the connections will become weaker. And if you want to strengthen a pathway, again, it's just not just repetition, but it is repetition um, through the neurons that need to communicate with each other on a consistent uh, basis so that they can then strengthen a communication between the two neurons through AMPA receptor uh, signaling. But I don't know if you want me to go down that deep with the, no, <laughs> with no, the mechanisms great. of that. But yeah. you know, uh, so this for anyone that's interested, neurons. yeah. So just for anyone that's interested, you know, when when synapses communicate strong with one another, they're essentially inserting more AMPA receptors so that there's more surface level, uh, sorry, surface area on the postsynaptic terminal to then allow for more communication to come in. So that's the sort of underlying mechanism of neuroplasticity. Um, Yeah. yeah. Did that answer your question a little bit? Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And and, (laughs) and on a day
0: to day basis, you know, when you're, when you're speaking with a a person to, you know, who's, who's interested in changing their daily habits. So for example, Mm. a lot of our community members are really interested in exercising on a regular basis. Right. So. The idea of starting a habit that was not there—that may yeah. may involve some difficulty, some adverse consequences. You know, whether it's soreness in their legs or yeah. just not really feeling like getting up and really exerting yourself. Um, yeah. We we help them. Uh, we help them identify um, specific cues and also rewards uh-huh. associated with it. Um, but like you said, I think it has to fire the, the neurons have to fire together, which essentially means that there has to be a repetition aspect in that activity for it to become
2: a solid habit. Exactly. And the beauty of it is that, you know, in the beginning, it's going to be mentally taxing. Again, we can go back to the mm-hmm. sort of iceberg level where we assume that 10% of our processes are conscious and 90%, or whatever, whatever the number is. I don't think we've ever landed on a, on a number, you know, oh, famously, no, okay. but <laughs> In theory. So in the beginning, it feels quite hard to push a new habit because you have to actively think about it. Now, the underlying sort of rules for plasticity are that attention and intention needs to be present. So that is acetylcholine and norepinephrine. So if you look at any of the research by uh, Michael Merzenich, I don't know if you've ever read any of his work, incredible. He's sort of one of the, you know, yeah. And he did a fantastic series of experiments where they made people with tactile discrimination and they essentially made people um, place their finger on a barrel that had sort of these like dots on it and when distracted there wasn't any plasticity in the brain but when they told them to pay attention and whether they could feel the difference in the size of the sort of spaces they could you know um, they, they would see induced plasticity so that shows us that we have to pay attention to the things that we want to change so you You know, most people will kind of say again on a Monday, I want to become a runner. I want to become more healthy by Friday. Mental heuristics have taken over and the brain will revert back to what it knows best and what is automatic. And the brain is a machine that wants to essentially save energy for more cognitively demanding tasks. So it's not going to remind you to pick up a new habit. It's not going to say, Hey, Dean, I know you wanted to run this week. (laughs) Uh, also because as a conscious being, we'll sort of find the excuses not to do that. And we can go down the route of motivation because I know you've asked that question as well. But, you know, making sure they'll be getting those repetitions in so that we're essentially creating a new or changing the habit loop. Down to the basal ganglia level, that it becomes an automatic thing. So I get up now, I brush my teeth first thing, which I hope everybody does, and most people do. They get up, they brush their teeth, they make coffee or whatever in whatever sort of order that is. It might sort of deviate from person to person, but essentially you you would be doing roughly the same thing every day, unless you're in a new environment. So like when I go on yeah. holiday, sometimes I might brush my teeth after breakfast or whatever. Okay, That's but awesome. yeah, so yeah. yeah, so to implement a new habit, it it, it needs to be that element of like friction before it kind of sticks a little bit. And yeah. that's the point where it takes a lot more sort of mental energy. Um, and that's what my research is looking at the moment, is the amount of energy we sort of use awesome. on decisions. So yeah, it's pretty cool. But um, you know, if it gives people hope to know that it will become, you know, ingrained eventually. It's one of those things like you get up and I feel off if I don't do my Pilates first thing in the morning, because that's what I do pretty much every morning, Monday to Friday. So when I don't do it and I kind of everything feels a bit different, it's not a problem because I'm, you know, adaptable. But it's one of those things that I can kind of feel like I have not done my usual routine and we like routine as humans.
0: That's a great point. I want to ask a question from both of you. I think I'm interviewing Dean here as well. So, you know, we we live in a world where, you know, everybody wants to be healthy. Everyone there, I I don't think there are a lot of people who just get up and say, I really don't care about myself. I'm just going to let myself go. There are very few people like that, but most people want to live a healthy life. They want to eat healthy. They want to exercise. They want to have healthy habits and they want to be the best versions of who they are. But it really Mm -hmm. doesn't happen. And, you know, coming back to the way you describe it, this this friction at the very beginning is, I believe, what stops them from achieving that first step towards a healthy habit, right? So Mm -hmm. you want to eat healthy. But then there are so many influences around you and then you forget about it. You go to work, yes. you take your lunch, but your lunch seems very <laughs> dull <laughs> and exciting. And then you go to the cafeteria and you eat whatever, right? You you want to go exercise, but Netflix has your favorite show and you're like, forget about it. I'm just gonna catch up on my show. So there's mm-hmm. always these small little breaks happening and we're being bombarded by options, 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 options mm-hmm. that we just kind of forget about focusing specifically on that habit that we want to. An alarming number that I read recently was, despite all of this crazy conversation about healthy nutrition and, you know, the diet wars and everything else, 0.7% of people in the United States actually eat a healthy diet. And it's like, wow. uh, not even like the op- most optimal diet. It's like a diet that has been, you know, watered, it's down. watered down and it's it's, it's, wow. it's okay, you know, 0.7%. With everything that we have. Yes, 0.7. Not even 1% of Americans actually eat a healthy dietary pattern. Okay. So (laughs) I want us, I want us, I want the two of you to actually tell us, like, what, why, why, first of all, that happens? And what can we do as, you know, agents of change, as human beings wanting to be the best versions of who we are, kind of figuring out that why or that first step? Um, Mm -hmm. Dean always gives an example, um, and I love that example, where you say, you know, habits are like walking on a path. You walk on it so many times, you actually create deep grooves, and those grooves becomes deep walls, like walking in the snow. And then you have those walls in your path, Seth, and then you won't really bother looking here and there or taking different paths to get to your goal. Um, But besides that, what are some of the other factors that people can actually implement in their life? to get through that, that, that friction zone, that first step uh-huh. where there's just so much noise and so much distraction.
2: Yeah, I give that analogy as well, by the way. I normally give I a, 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 say there's a field and then one path is kind of like a dirt road and the other one is paved with lights. But if you go down the dirt road, eventually that you'll pave it, you'll put some bricks down and eventually you'll have some street lights and eventually it'll be a motorway um, or a highway. I think you guys call them highways there. Um, So yeah, I I completely resonate with that analogy for sure. But so a couple of things, I think, firstly, people need to become more specific about their goals. So they will say, I want to be healthy. What does that mean? Because that's an umbrella term for a lot of things, right? If you want to start supplementing, going to the gym three days a week and eating right and changing your diet, eating more fish, taking on a minute, you know, there's a lot of sort of things underneath that umbrella. So becoming specific with what it is you want to change will help for sure. Because now you have actually attached uh, a label to the exact thing you want to change. I So what I get to do with sort of clients, I'll say, okay, we'll start with you eating more vegetables. Okay, we'll add to this because it's quite hard to take things away from people. Um, if you start saying you can't have sugar or you can't have this, people are kind of like, I want to change, but it's really difficult for me to now embark on this whole new thing where I can't eat. And uh, I'm not in any way saying you can't eat the things you want to, because absolutely, you know, sugar is not the devil. We've already established that um, in moderation. But um, so becoming more specific with the goals. Now, another interesting thing, and you guys can sort of agree or disagree with me and let me know what your thoughts are, but because the data on this is a little bit, um, it hasn't been exactly pinpointed, but from what we understand is we have more norepinephrine in the earlier parts of our day. So the first eight hours upon waking, um, the first phase of your day, we have higher levels of norepinephrine. And then this is where it becomes debatable. So debatably, we have more serotonin in the afternoons in the sort of second uh, phase of the day. And then you've got the most important part of habit formation is sleep, the memory consolidation part of your day. So that's also where people are lacking. So people are tired, people are, you know, overworked, stressed. So we, you know, we can go down so many layers of habit implementation, but sleep and in- ensuring that we're getting that sort of REM sleep for memory consolidation is really, really important it's all the way through to non-REM sleep, you know, deep sleep for, um, yeah. you know, hormone release, uh, growth hormone, et cetera, that will consolidate all the way through to synaptic level, right? So you can see how something as simple as sleep can you know be so effective in aiding us to create these habits? So, all the habits that are essentially harder for one to achieve. So, if you want to uh, say you want to adopt a um, a running habit, and you also want to adopt a sort of visualization or meditation practice, those are your two habits that you want to to uh, start you know changing under the umbrella of health. You would put the running in the earlier part of your day because your vigilance is going to be higher. And your vigilance is going to be more decremented by the afternoon. So it's going to be harder for you to make the decision to go for a run after a long day at work. Your decision-making skills essentially become impaired. So um, vigilance decrement essentially explains that throughout the day, our ability to hold focus diminishes and essentially our decision-making skills kind of crumble with that. And I see that with my dogs when I'm training them. Like the first 10 minutes, they're great. The second 10 minutes, they're like their sort of heads are going all over the place. And I, it's a great sort of visualization of how we operate as humans, because I think, you know, um, that definitely happens to us for the first sort of two hours of my working day. I'm definitely more alert than the second sort of the last two hours. So harder habits earlier part of the day, easier habits in the last part of the day. So that's where I normally tell people, okay, you want to be healthier. So what if you commit to meal prepping in the evening? despite uh, the fact that you want to order in junk food or watch Netflix and just eat a slice of toast with cheese. So um, (laughs) because meal prepping, even though cognitively harder, is definitely not as physically as hard as going for a run. So that's the first element is understanding that we as humans want to revert back to what is automatic. And what is automatic is probably coming home, dumping yourself on the sofa and scrolling through Instagram. Now, with that being said, when we do that, we also deplete our dopamine resources that put us in motivation drive to want to then meal prep. So it's easier then to make the decision to not do it because it's easier to lay in front of the sofa and want more dopamine. That's sort of short term, uh, if you will, more like a short term goal, sort of like readily available dopamine because putting an effort for the reward. Doesn't really sit with our current wants and needs. So I think helping people understand all these things makes them also realize that there's nothing wrong with them. Because I think people put a lot of blame on themselves. They say, oh, I'm lazy. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm not motivated. But when they start understanding the mechanisms of why it is that we do these things, it kind of helps them to understand that they're not lazy. So now that we're taking away that identity that we spoke about in the beginning where we're attaching the outcome to ourselves. You know, people that have been told they're super smart, when they fail, it sort of infringes on their beliefs of their intelligence and who they are as a person. In the same way that people who believe they are lazy, when they then don't go and exercise or don't do what they said they were going to, it sort of um, becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So then they don't do it because they're lazy and they don't sort of, they're lazy so they don't do it. So I think that that's really important as in educating people and helping them understand that they have the ability to do all these things. They just might not have the right conditions. Beautiful. That's, beautiful. Such, a,
0: that's such an important mm-hmm. distinction to make um, on a regular basis and um, um, always um, also focus on uh, creating the identity that comes along with that action.
1: Yeah. yeah no I, I love that. I love the the approach. The, uh, the way I, 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 the same along the same way that you do uh, first of all, I take away judgment uh, yeah. from them uh, the judging themselves, I'm saying and uh, because uh, it, it, it almost makes scientists out of people saying it's not about failure. it's not failure. Yeah. It's, if we just take our behaviors as data capture mechanisms, uh-huh. I, I'm trying to change this behavior like you define it clearly define yeah. exactly what you're trying to get rid of and what you're trying to put into place and yeah. be very specific and then you put systems in place that deals with and I'm going to tell you what specific things and you capture data and it's not yeah. failure okay this time it didn't it was a successful 5 days oh that's pretty good that's compared to 2 days so that means that so it's then you become yes. a non-judgmental data driven self-improving superpower Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just amazing. Then and, and judgment is important because when you're judging yourself negatively, it becomes an incredible impediment. It becomes a yeah. demotivating imp- impediment at the, at the neurotransmitter level, at the behavior level. And when you're actually seeing yourself as an ever-improving data processing, vacillating mm. system that keeps improving, then it becomes incredibly motivating. But starts with identifying the behaviors. Mm-hmm. Once you've identified the behaviors, uh, coming back to the beautiful thing you said about attention I say the tension is the gatekeeper of all consciousness and yep. behavior uh-huh. what is the thing that brings you greatest attention that and for more sustained time to be able to change behavior and why do we fail is because this distraction the distractor the attention of the distractor is stronger than than what you've created in your system uh, that would get your attention for the new behavior so, mm-hmm. oh, okay, so I'm going to try to eat healthy, but that doesn't mean anything. I'm gonna eat more greens, but why do I fail? It's not because I'm trying to fail. I was distracted. I was demotivated, my motivation. So those are all attentional things that were overtaken. So, okay, so that's a mechanism. Where am I losing attention? Why am I losing attention? What is taking my attention? Identify those and put attentive things that take you to other direction then it becomes mechanistic and you're a scientist, mm-hmm. you're ever improving yourself without judgment. And there's a mechanism to it that's a little more detailed and it's beautiful how people mm-hmm. feel like, oh my gosh, a thing that took me 40 years and I couldn't change. Now I changed it, but in small increments and mm-hmm. every step felt positive. Mm-hmm. I, I love that the the, the the analogy you gave of attention and the light and that path less traveled as the poets say it.
2: Yeah. And I love what you said about attention because my current research right now, hello, sorry, I've got my dog joining me. <laughs> um Hello. <Ooh>. Oh, <laughs> that's is oh, nice. We're a dog
1: we're a dog family, as yeah.
2: you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> she's very sweet. Um she's only a, she'll be a year old next yeah. month. Um But well, attention. I love that because thank you. Um, we put our attention, I think, on the wrong thing sometimes. So then that adds to that vigilance decrement that I was talking about. So what the study that I've just done, I'm doing the series is like when, how do we make decisions post social media use versus after taking a strategic mental break? So let's assume, or let's say that your brain needs attentional resources and just energy resources. If you're allocating, I've got dog hairs on my fingers. If you're allocating that energy resource now to something else like social media. And again, I don't want to like, you know, completely bash social media because I use it for really good purposes. I've met you guys. Great. But, you know, we need to start paying attention to these things. And I like purposely, for example, do not scroll on social media for at least half hour to an hour before a workout or before a podcast, before an interview, before a client uh, meeting, because my brain will just not be able to with, you know, hold that much information for the person that I'm speaking to yeah. if I've just given it away to something like social media. So that's the other thing. If we start paying attention to all the things that don't really matter, the noise, then how much attention will you have left for the things that you want to do? So now, you come home, you're depleted, you've got a meal prep, but you've actually just spent an hour to two hours on social media, maybe, I don't know, arguing with someone in the comments. Perhaps you had an argument with your colleague and now you've got to <laughs> yeah. you know, think about that. And all these energy resources are being allocated to something else that doesn't serve you. So then you compromise on your health and your well-being because of something that is externally stimulating you which I think is wild. When I thought about it like that, I was like, I'm essentially letting 390,000 people dictate whether I'm going to meal prep for myself tonight.
0: Yeah. yeah. And the good news is once this becomes, you know, a solid habit, then your decision-making process becomes easier as well. Um, you know... It- yeah. Having having established habits essentially override your executive control, exactly. as you had mentioned uh, you know, exactly. in one of your conversations. Can you hint to that uh, to,
2: to our audience, what that essentially means? Exactly. So we call them mental heuristics. They're essentially shortcuts. It's the reason why you don't think about how you brush your teeth. You don't think about how you get in your car. You don't think about how you talk to your dog. So I walk into the kitchen and my uh, father-in-law was actually sort of uh, making fun of me the other day because he was saying the dog doesn't like him. So he was like, maybe I need to speak to her in English. And he started imitating, when went, baby. <laughs> and it's something that I do every time I see her, but I don't even think about it. It's just something that comes out of my mouth. Yeah. And when he said it, I was like, oh my God, I do do that. So yes. thought <laughs> was quite funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, another example is the other day I was walking and my partner, um, sort of got a new camera and he put the camera up. And as soon as he did that, I went and I just smiled because like out of habit, my body did that without me thinking <laughs> about that, like smile, hands on my, uh, yeah. sort of hips and, a, or a peace sign or, uh, you know, I grew up in the nineties with yeah. like, a Spice Girl. So peace, peace sign is my life. Um, Same here. <laughs> yeah. So these mental heuristics are essentially shortcuts that your brain. Glad I yeah. could make you guys laugh a little bit there are shortcuts that your brain takes. So when we have an ingrained pattern of behavior or habit, it overrides that decision making. So you make decisions uh subconsciously or unconsciously without you having to think about it, because it, it would be very taxing for you to think, okay, now I brush teeth and I'm going to do it like this. Okay, now I'm going to boil the kettle and I'm going to pour it at this angle. You know, that would just be like, you know, crazy for us. So that's just, you know, a, a very basic example, but that's how we end up making decisions. Always, you know, you can kind of see it with athletes. And I love looking at athletes because I love watching their mannerisms. So um, Dan Biggar is the kicker for the Welsh um, rugby team. And he does this like crazy kind of like dance before he kicks his ball. And I have a friend that's visiting at the moment. She's a professional weightlifter. And she says that she taps the bar four times and she does this kind of like ritual with her, you know, in yeah. her head where she uh, sort of associates the somatic feeling of her grabbing the bar, um, with whatever she's sort of saying to herself in her head to get her in the zone. And, um, I love that because you can see how they are now embodying a different person to get rid of the decision-making of how they're going to kick that ball so that it can become automatic, deeply ingrained from they've practiced over and over and over. LeBron James has taken like 300 shots per day, apparently. Um, I think it, it amounted to like 56,000 shots in a, a year. I don't know. I can't remember. Something crazy like that. But, and now it's something yeah, that yeah. just happens for him. He doesn't have to think about it when he's on the pitch running. The way he shoots that ball into the hoop is just something that happens for him on an automatic level. So, uh, those mental heuristics, he's not choosing how he's going to throw the ball. It's just something that happens. So. Um, in the beginning, we have to make these decisions. We have to say, "I'm going to do this," and then by the end of the sort of I don't know month, it's something that just happens. Sorry, Dean, you were going to say something. Yeah,
1: um, no, no, I, I I I might be going on a tangent, but I, that's that's my that's nature. What I, the I, podcast, I, yeah, yeah, this is <laughs> important. So, my question to you is: Yes, there are certain things that stop and start at the mental heuristics. There are are there? And my belief. So, I'll tell you my my perspective. I think everything. Is habit driven everything? Yeah. Even our our political thoughts, our, our 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 conversations we're we're having. The only thing is the, the final steps of the mental heuristics that have been set in place are more overt and are the ten percent or whatever. But <laughs> we will decide at some other yeah. point is over the ice, you know, the, uh, yeah. up the water and the and the and the heuristics have started and have been laid out. Everything. And and the importance mm-hmm. of that is, it's a, uh, I, I, I hate the word humility or hubris because they're just words that are don't have thought behind it. They're just silencers of conversations. So instead of that, but scientifically it brings some humility to the fact that all our behaviors have heuristics that can be adapted, that can be improved and shouldn't be assumed that have been thought out. And it really... Uh, it, it, and even in a political sense where all this divide in the United States, the world, mm-hmm. it pulls people back and say, oh, let me question my heuristics that, that yeah. manifest ultimately uh, as, a, as a, by, a final byproduct. Let me go yeah. back to the heuristics that that were laid down when I was a child. So, yeah. sorry, very tangential, but it's uh, to me, it's no, such an it's... important thing. Do
2: you think that habits, where habit loops are in everything? Uh, and so I was going to say, I actually love that you brought that up because it's so relevant and it's a big part of my book at the moment. So, you know, the observational knowledge that we gain from our parents and the way that they maybe criticize themselves yes. or talk to themselves or talk to other people. Um, My mother came to visit me a couple of months ago and she was in the car getting really aggy about something. And I literally, I looked at her and I went, oh my God, I can see why. I spent the majority of my twenties trying to regulate my nervous system to not behave like that in stressful situations (laughs) because she does that. She gets really panicked about silly things, which is something I used to do. I don't do it so much anymore, but it's crazy because I could see myself, well, I could see myself in her or her in me. And I was like, wow. And that's, that's just it. Right. So this is, um. Slightly not scientific, but I'll mention it anyway. And there's a um, Venezuelan tribe called the Yucana tribe, and they believe that the first eighteen months of a child's life, they should hold the baby continuously. So the mother wakes up to go to the bathroom at night; she'll pick up the baby from the crib, take her with her, um, so that the baby learns that when she leans into the stove and pulls the baby away, they learn through that me- through that behavior that the stove is hot. Um, wow. There's a whole book on it. It's called the continuum theory, I believe. Uh, it's Ruben. not very scientific because it hasn't been proven, but I love that. And I, it, it sort of poses the question as to how much we absorb from the things around us, the things we're in sort of interacting with the media we're watching, the political stances that the people around us have, the way that people do their hair that then sort of, you know, influence me to do my hair differently. I still will never know the answer to that question, but you know, so. All the observational knowledge that we gain from everything that we're interacting with essentially creates a database of what you should be like, which to me is wild that we have essentially been conditioned by everything else around us, not ourselves in our childhood. Then we turn 18 and we realize, you know what, I go to university, I can do what I want. And hopefully people realize their true potential by realizing that they can change, that maybe the way they are is not something that they condition for themselves something that their parents conditioned for them or their peers, their teachers, their friends, family. How many people do I know that go through life thinking I'm not smart enough, I'm not creative, I'm not this, I'm not that because people told them that when they were children.
1: One of the uh, things that we talk about and it's more on the psychological research side of things is that uh, one of the most important concepts is managing change. Um, Mm. All leadership is managing change. All growth is managing change or comfort with that change, or not getting anxious with that change. People yeah. learn that aspect or their condition with that aspect of um, uh, dealing with adversity in home. at home. So no MBA program, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Oxford, none of them will be able to outdo the things that you learn with, with your ability to manage uh, uncomfortable situations, to yeah. manage mm-hmm. um, uh, adversity, to manage change, better than what you did in the first 18 years of life. So if there's anything I want to talk to the families is about that is more important than anything as far as the child's leadership or growth. Whatever whatever you're doing that's making you grow, that's leadership, that's change, it's managing yeah. change. The rest is management. Is learned on how you as a parent dealt with adversity. A car yeah. had an accident. There's one person that goes crazy and panicking and another and okay, let's pull the car to the side. Let's fix it. Yeah, there it is. That's your MBA right there.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and I that's think your, that, going cycling back, I love that because I think cycling back to your questions, even I know my, I so, sort of said my mum was very panicky, but in big situations, she's always been really good at being like, it's okay, we'll figure it out. Her underlying theme to life is, okay, it's okay, we'll figure it out. So maybe that's you know adds to that. the question you asked <laughs> earlier yeah. as to why I ended up being able to kind of do what I did and and come to the UK. So yes, because change. Is the most important part of life, in my opinion, anyway. So, anything that's constant. What's that famous quote? Yeah. Change is the only thing that's constant. And I think people fear change. So, allowing people yeah. to be comfortable in that change is vitally important. So, it's one of my talks is actually when I go into corporations. Um, it's the sort of positive side of stress, and how we can leverage stress to essentially yeah. be better and and kind of reshape that. Obviously, there's you know a, a threshold to where that becomes chronic and bad and, you know, all the detrimental things. But, you know, on a fundamental level, stress is the reason why we're having this conversation in the first place, right? Because we need an element of arousal to be cognitively present enough to even talk about these things. So, um, yeah, I love exactly what you said there about sort of teaching people that they can change through adversity and, and embracing the change.
0: One of the biggest challenges as uh, a parent, a a parent who is a neurologist and a scientist who knows what's going on in their children's brain has been just that of how how to reflect uh, living in an uncomfortable situation to two human beings that are separate from you, but they're your children and you want the best for them. So in many ways, um, I've had to change my way of reacting to adverse situations or something that was very considered normal for us, because I've learned it from my parents. My parents were amazing people, but uh, this this reaction to a stressful situation was something that I never learned early on in yeah. life. And so, panicking when something went wrong and being a little over controlling about a situation was quite detrimental at the beginning. And I've learned how to not react like that, and it's been a really freeing experience because it reflects on everything else and every other field as well. So yeah. um you know and and I continue to learn that uh, and, and I think that's the that's the case for a lot of parents who are interested in 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 raising children that are comfortable with the change changes around yeah. them the the the, the 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 word that you chose um and I think once you're comfortable with an uncomfortable situation that allows for you to learn more to to uh, uh to to create better memories explore to, to explore and be creative. I mean, at the end of the day, we want human beings to be creative, to make better decisions, to make, you know, to, to essentially grow. And growth will never happen when you're always feeling challenged and feeling stressed mm-hmm. in a negative way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, no. Your your story um, of how, <clears throat> the, you know, the, the element that you brought about your mom, it, it you know, to somebody that might sound like a small thing, like, it's okay. We're, we're going to be okay yeah that's yeah, that's huge that that that's huge. huge that's the that's the mechanism yeah uh, of yeah. not panicking there's a pathway we'll, f- we'll we'll work our way through it and that's a that's a very important thing i know that we get into the the nitty-gritty of the dopamine and the serotonin and the uh um, um indirect and direct pathways of basal ganglia i was going to talk yeah. to you about <laughs> uh, and in parkinson's yeah uh, in yeah. parkinson's we put these deep brain stimulators and now we are able to actually because in different spots of those wires you can turn it on and off and you can see behavior wow. changing and motivations changing and and all of that so it's beautiful how we are learning about human behavior being um such a um uh, uh, my daughter's taking electrical engineering and biomedical engineering and wow it's such an electrical system that's easily maneuvered and changed because we see it on, on patients with with parkinsons yeah yeah, and they've done experiments that when in different parts of basal ganglia, because in that pathway there are different elements of on and off, right? So uh, yeah. there's the indirect pathway, and then there's in the, the direct pathway. That, that yeah. by by switching just a little bit, stimulating this part, an entire motivational cascade changes. Yeah, which is yeah. remarkable, and we see this in our cl- yeah. in our patients on a regular basis. or um, uh, addiction pathways are turned on all of a sudden because you've turned on the dopamine pathway. You've given given them yeah. cinema. Or you've turned yeah. on the dopamine pathway electrically. It's it's yeah. just remarkable.
2: A uh, quick funny story. I know this is going off on a tangent, but I, first year university, was doing the direct and indirect pathways. And I, obviously, you go into the exam room and they, you have to write an essay. And I memorized that indirect and di- the whole pathway. I knew the h- whole diagram, which, to be honest, I can't remember now off the top of my head. It's so but painful, knew- isn't it? Oh, that's a painful. Oh that's God. a pain. yeah. <laughs> to anyone that is listening, please go and Google yeah. it, and you know, entertain yourself. So I memorized no, whole We will big- <laughs> we'll
1: yeah, we'll include the picture here.
2: Yes, we'll actually <laughs> add it to
0: the podcast notes, so With people my can face. take it
2: <laughs> Because. <laughs> No, this, this 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 essay is this story is going to blow your mind. I memorized this whole diagram. I knew it back to front. I knew everything. I was so ready for them to ask this question. They asked about motor control, and they wanted me to answer something else. Basically, I didn't answer the question. So, I went down the whole route of how motor control is now initiated by the basal ganglia, which, you know, you can argue that it was correct, but they were like, no, this is not the right answer. I got 35% for that essay, even though every single thing on there was factually correct. I didn't answer the question. And I was, yeah.
1: You know, I'm so brutal. proud of
2: myself. I'm That's, so proud yeah. of myself remembering that basal ganglia because I was like, I don't care what I got. I know that I remember that. Yeah.
1: Huh? Obviously, the test was was not a smart test because they should have known. The totality, of what you've done, what you've learned—that's a—that's a tough pathway to learn.
0: I know. I was so ready for it. I want to ask a question about, um, you know, one of the words that you uh, that you used a couple of times. Actually, yeah. two words. I'm going to pick on uh, the word motivation and yeah. moderation. All right. So, okay. at the beginning of the conversation, when we were talking about nature versus nurture and environment, you said that one has to be motivated to want to go towards that. And motivation yeah. is a word that we use on a regular basis. And I've heard you speak about it and we use it as well. But I think we have to be cautious about it and perhaps, you know, yes, describe yeah. it a little more because it could, but it could def- definitely be. And um, pardon me, using this, a very demotivating concept. Yeah, 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 I wanted yeah, you yeah. both to explore on that. So what yes. do you mean by motivation,
2: Nicole, when you're speaking to someone? I don't know if I do use motivation. Maybe I did. And if I did, I need to go back and listen into what context, because I think motivation is is can be a very, like you said, a demoralizing idea that we need to be motivated. Uh, you know, there are obviously, um, you know, reasons why people won't be motivated through neurodivergencies, through, uh, you know, dopamine depletion, through people who have, you know, ADHD and, you know, plethora of other um, issues. So the word motivation, I think, has been, uh, I don't know if the word diluted is right, but maybe like negatively connotated with, you know, um, get up and do it. So I think... I'd love to hear your, your take on that, actually, Dean, what, what, what are yeah. your thoughts yeah. around yeah. that?
1: Yeah. I know that you're, you're, you're right. That's been diluted. There's a place for it, but it has to be as it's the human journey. And there's a fight against the human journey. And it's always been nuance is a thing that people fight against because they think that they want to preserve what they were born with. Nope. We're going to change, it used to change or become irrelevant. We're, and the yeah. changes and nuance, we're becoming more and more and more and more knowledgeable about the nuance of humanity, human expressions, human behavior, human human elements. And motivation is just one of those concepts. Motivation is not a thing that you have or you don't have. Yeah, I mean, yeah. on the big picture, you do. But what are the things that get you moving in a direction that you want to move or you should be moving? Um, yeah. um, um, if a person who's a drug addict, and is not motivated to change. So we don't say, oh, that's him. No, because that's actually detrimental to his or her life. Um, yeah. So we have to find out what are the mechanisms that would motivate him to a different direction? And yeah. what are the mechanisms that are motivating him in the given direction? And that means, mm-hmm. the, that, that, that definition in itself actually breaks it down, which means, what are the things that are gar- making him attend to the addiction? What are the mechanisms that are making the addiction available? What are the mechanisms that are inhibiting the path of change? What are the mechanisms that are not highlighting the mechanism and profit of change or bad uh, the, yeah. the, the economics, neuroeconomics oh, yeah, of change yeah, yeah, yeah. as our friend Paul Zach would say. Yeah. Uh, and what are the, uh, and uh, look at this, that's a lot of work. Oh my goodness. And then somebody said, uh, I hate the concept. People say, um, uh, you know, um, if, if it's not simple enough, it's not, it's, uh, it's not worth it. No life is complicated and motivation is complicated. We really have to break down the things that highlight the good motivation or or the or the wellness, if, if, yeah. a more general uh, sense, wellness motivation, of motivators of that person. What are the elements that could highlight it more? What are the elements that are de de-emphasize the negative pathway? What are the steps? Oh, even steps. A lot of times, most of us take this habit change as a monosyllabic one unit thing it might not be it Mm -hmm. might be multiple breakdown of that that behavior Mm -hmm. the smaller steps so that they can move to the higher steps we often fail people with a beautiful plan here's a habit. here's the uh, stimulus here's the trigger here's the behavior here's the environmental thing Mm -hmm. and here's the reward i got everything settled you're good go go home but no for him or her there were multiple other mini steps that must be taken into consideration so the nuance and behavior and motivation is the pa- is what we're doing in this century, and um, and I think it's going to be beautiful to figure out each of individual's nuance as far as the motivators, the micro motivators, micro demotivators, the attention grabbers, the attention, the rewards, the micro rewards, and and just because the world does not adapt to our immediate uh, knowledge, it doesn't mean that we should ignore the world. <laughs> So yeah. I think that's where we are. I think that's, and the people that are doing that kind of work are amazing, lovely people like you who are in the, in the, into the trees and bringing that out. And, and that's that's going to be beautiful because it also takes the judgment out of people.
0: That's true. Mm. Uh, it,
1: it, the, the, the arrogance of judgment or the ignorance of, there's no arrogance. Yeah. The ignorance of judgment saying that, oh, mm. that person is addicted. We don't even say it, but there's a judgment in that. There are yeah. mechanisms. Once we figure yeah. out the mechanisms, we stop with with silly concepts, like he should just pull himself by the bootstraps,
2: yeah, it's silly, yeah, yeah.
1: it's just silly, yeah,
2: yeah, there needs to be an element of sort of intrinsic motivation because anything that's extrinsic, like people telling you what to do is probably not going to last very long, no. you know, maybe no. if someone offered you a lot of money, there's a bigger extrinsic motivator there, but you know it's it needs to, most of the time come from within, depending on the the, the value of the extrinsic. Uh, Motivator, Um, there's a woman called I can't remember her name. She's a female neuroscientist. Um, Actually, you were saying that you there's not that many, but she's she's amazing. So I'll find the name and I'll send it to you. She does sort of yeah research into motivation and behavioural change, and she did an amazing TED talk where she spoke about how when the sort of stock market was sort of volatile, when the stock market was low people didn't tend to log into their accounts as much. And when the stock market was high, they would log in more regularly. The only time that they would log in when the stock market was low was when it was very low and it was implicating their financial resources. So what she basically deduced from that is that when we, we don't want to pay attention to the negative things. So someone tells you that your car is contributing to climate change you might be motivated for a little bit of time to change that, but really you don't want to hear those things. It has to come from within. So you have to say, you know what? My car is contributing to climate change. I should really change my car because we don't want to hear the negative things. So negative re, so negative uh, insinuation or negative kind of uh, uh, su- gestures or um, subliminal hints, negative ones, Calutation. they don't tend to, yeah, con- they don't tend to work on humans. We need positive, which then sort yeah. of poses the question again, why do we berate ourselves when we do something wrong? Because it doesn't drive us to change. So the thing that we should be doing is self-assessment. Why? Did, what, what was the reason that I smoked my cigarette when I said I was going to stop? So then you start looking at the environmental cues, all the triggers that lead you to wanting to do that because berating yourself about wanting to stop smoking. Would have worked the first time you did it if it was going to be a sort of a positive w- way to create behavioral change, right? So we know that small negative, um, suggestions towards change don't work. Very bad ones do. So you will die tomorrow if you don't stop smoking will help. Um, or, you know, if, if your car directly impacts you and your health, that will probably make you want to change. But on a sort of, sort of basic level, We need positive reinforcement or positive information to make us want to change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously that might not work for someone with an addiction because there's a whole sort of other added layer to that, which we already sort of touched base on. And that's the substance, um, you know, component to the addiction. Uh, But most behaviors don't tend to work if we beat ourselves up about it. Absolutely. Such a great point. That is a beautiful beautiful.
0: point. What do you guys think of moderation? Do you think that we should? Um, operationalize that terminology because a lot of times, you know, when it comes to making small incremental changes towards a positive habit, the word motivation comes up, um, a lot. Sorry, moderation. The word moderation comes up a lot. And so, um, um, and and moderation for one individual might be completely different compared to someone else, right? If you're asking someone to, uh, say, for example, cut down on smoking cigarettes. Or you know, people throw the word moderation in there. What does that essentially mean for someone who smokes three packs of cigarettes versus one cigarette every other day? You know. Yeah. So, um, it, and and people have to be aware of what they mean because, usually, in my opinion, or in my in my uh, just word moderation comes when people have difficulty letting go of something. He said, I'll do it yeah. in moderation, which means I won't <laughs> stop it right away, or I won't start it right away. I will do it slowly and gradually. So I mm-hmm. think it would be important for us
2: to define that better, don't you think? hundred percent. But I also think that it requires a bit of nuance because mm. smoking, obviously, for me personally, I don't smoke, so moderation it wouldn't exist in that context because it's not yeah. something that I would ever really do. Maybe if I was like very drunk at a festival. But even then, like I don't really drink that much to get myself to the point where I would smoke a cigarette. So okay, so moderation wow. for me yeah. in that context is no. But then you know, would I say I think you have to be self-aware in yourself. This this is the part where you have to apply these words and these meanings to your own personal life and instill self-inquiry because Moderation to me when it comes to, say, for example, drinking wine means when I'm at an event or I'm cheersing with my family ever so often, but moderation to somebody else might mean again every week. And then you get that kind of tip where it goes too far. So now you're associating moderation with every day, and we know that that's not good either. It's a very difficult question, Aisha. I'm not entirely sure. I know how to answer that, yeah. I love the, yeah. I love trying. <laughs> yeah. Right. I know it's, it's, a, it's
0: very interesting.
1: And uh, yeah. may I posit a, a concept and, and I would love your, with your brilliant input. Uh, I think we should, uh, it's a moderate, I think if we're hoping to change behavior, we have to have metrics, a measurable yeah. thing. And, and, mm-hmm. and if we put metrics and it doesn't, and it could be a moderate metric, but it's still a metric that's measurable and it's not loose. Then it, it takes away blame. It takes away, uh, uh, judgment yet at the same time, it's a, it's a marker that somebody can hope to hit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that would be a good, a good approach. Um, and then at the same time, if people do something that's outside of that marker, it, it doesn't mean that we move the bar by, 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 by loosening mm. the confidence intervals, but by saying that's part of data, that's part of yeah. analysis yeah we were you know uh, we were supposed to drink one glass of wine a day, and oh, during this time, I drank three glasses. Uh, I'm not gonna change my definition uh, b- oh, because moderate. of that no, yeah, moderate. but what I will do is figure out the situation that led to that, and then I'd identify it, learn it, adapt, and so on and so forth. I think having measurable metrics without judgment just takes away so much pressure
0: mm-hmm. and, I and like also that. You
1: know, Gives mechanisms, and I, 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 it's worked with my patients where they feel like, oh my goodness, I'm not judging myself anymore. So that's there is no judgment at all, but yet there is a mechanism that uh, every time something happens, I can work with that thing. That's that's a number. That's a that's a tool.
2: Yeah, and actually, it's interesting because last year I ran a group coaching course, and there was someone who mentioned an app, and I'll have to find it and send it to you. But it allows you to be objective about your progress. I wanted to mention it earlier when you were talking about metrics. And it, it, because as humans, we tend to dwell on the negative. I shouldn't have done that. I'm not there. I should be there, but I'm here. That person is doing way better than me. But when we have this app, it kind of allows, I've never used it, but it, I've, I've taken a peek at it. And it allows you to sort of objectively um, see yourself as a scientist, like you said, and say, actually, yeah. I thought that I was at place six today, but actually, I'm at place seven when I really compare compared to, you know, the last few months, you see the progress and it's easier to focus on the positives. And again, yeah. bringing it back to motivational behavior change, we need positive reinforcement to reinforce yep. the journey that we're on because negative right. reinforcement we've established doesn't work. Have right. to find this the
1: is wonderful. <laughs> I love that so <laughs> much. Nicole, uh, well, we are going to be forever connected We, neuroscientists. <laughs> we love your approach. We love Thank everything you. that you do.
0: And you're coming to Los Angeles and I can't, have, I I can't am... wait to meet you in person and have you over for, for a dinner. Tell us about your book.
1: Yes.
2: Yes. So Rewire is all about how we can change Ooh. habits, behaviors, um, essentially the things that have, we believe have been hardwired. So again, the observational knowledge we've gained from our families that now have led us to hold these beliefs about ourselves that hold us back from being who we really want to be. So it's about how we can change our self-beliefs, our negative self-talk, and essentially live a life that allows you to be whoever you want to be. Oh, Oh, I love that so much. I love the title. I love the concept. It's going to help a lot of people. When is it coming out? May 2024, 21st in the US. And actually, I think we have the same publisher because... Uh, we had the same editor actually. Um, who was your original editor? I can't remember. Well, uh, we were
0: from Sydney Rogers. Sydney, uh... Rogers.
2: Yes. Yes. Sydney Rogers was my editor, but she unfortunately left. I now have, oh. um, yeah. Someone else who's actually Dr. Judy's editor. So, you know, I'm, I'm standing oh, amongst really big names. So I'm very honored. <laughs> um, we, we're, yeah, that's incredible. Lovely. Congratulations. I'm
0: so excited about your book. I can't Thank wait to you. read it. And. Yeah, more important. I can't wait to meet you in person and hopefully we'll Same. have more conversations
2: here. Same. I'm actually, my partner and I were toying with the idea of coming for a few months. So I just have to figure out how that would work with the dogs because we have one that's a bit reactive to humans and dogs. So she's not the easiest dog to have <laughs> around, but we love her. Um, but other people, unfortunately, won't probably get along oh, with her as yeah. well. as we do. Which is fine. We manage it. But, yeah. um, so if we can find a way to make it work coming for three months, then I think that would be fantastic. Cause I don't think you can do LA or uh, the U S in a month. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's such no, a great no, we'll, idea.
1: When you come, we'll actually introduce you to a lot of people in the field and, um oh, and that'd podcasts be amazing. And, and yeah. And also when the book's coming out, we'll do some big live sessions with some of our friends and ourselves. I and, would and, yeah, love that. Yeah.
2: Thank you. In any way summer? that I can support you guys, let me know. Cause you guys. You guys have been following me since before Nicole's Neuroscience, like way, way back when I wasn't posting any, con- I wasn't posting much content. And I remember you were one of the first sort of, you know, legit scientists that followed me. And I was like, <gasps> oh my God, the brain ducks you. I think you were still team Sherzai or Sherzai MD. Before. Yes, yeah, so yeah, I um, it was like that. yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, we, we loved
0: your content. And uh, I, I, I love, I love how you translate very hard science and complicated uh, concepts into easily. Uh, digestible and applicable information for for everyone. Appreciate that. Thank you. There
2: he is. She's off. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And can't wait to speak again. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I will see you soon as well. And that's a wrap.
0: Thank you for joining us today. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe and follow our podcast on Apple or Spotify and watch the recordings on our YouTube channel. We would appreciate you supporting this show with your review as it helps it reach more people. We look forward to connecting again in the next episode.